Question has been put forward this evening, which says, Do you think romantics can practice the way without giving up on romance? This is a bit of a challenge uh, for me to (laughs) contemplate. Um, However, Sometimes challenges are quite fun, so we'll see what happens. Um, I suppose my initial response to this, um, do you think romantics can practice their way without giving up on romance? My initial response would be uh, to say yes, definitely, absolutely, because uh, everybody can practice the way. Uh, there's no, uh, no reason why anybody who's interested can't practice the way. Uh, the way is basically reality way is is the way things are it's this this is the way and to practice the way means to open up to this it means to remove those veils of delusion those blinkers those obstructions to reality uh, that we all suffer from until we come into a more uh, direct relationship with this to the degree that any of us have experienced an unobstructed relationship with this moment, well, then we have experienced and know for ourselves the benefit of practice, and that's something that can be verified, as the Buddha said, each individual for themselves. However, uh, implied in this commitment to practice is, is uh, the uh, interest to learn from suffering. But it was very clear about uh, what he was teaching and what he wasn't teaching. He says, I teach two things. I teach suffering and the cessation of suffering. And uh, I was quite insistent on our preparing our minds, training our minds, so as to pay attention to the element of life we call suffering. Now, some religions and spiritual traditions will offer up hope or joy or pleasure or happiness as the thing to be focused on. And whereas the Buddha did mention uh, regularly about the benefits uh, of practice that manifest as joy and happiness, contentment and well-being, uh, and demonstrated that in in his life, of course, uh, he didn't say this was the thing to focus on. The thing to focus on is actually why it is that we're not always happy, contented, and full of joy and well-being. In other words, the suffering of our life. Because if we don't, if we're not willing or able to attend to this dimension of our lives, well then we don't learn the lessons of life and we keep suffering. It's just the same if one can use a physical uh, analogy. You have a pain under your arm, you've got a pain under your arm and you, you don't pay attention to it and 
and it gets worse and worse and worse. And you don't pay attention to it. You don't pay attention to it. You keep taking painkillers. I refuse to go and see the doctor about this pain under my arm. I am not in suffering. I'm, this is a, this is going to go away. And you keep on and keep on until eventually you've got, you got a growth the size of, a, of, a, of an orange under your arm and, and your cancerous tumor is metastasized and uh, there's not much you can do about it. And that's very unfortunate. Whereas the wise thing to do, of course, if you get a persistent pain anywhere in the body, the, to uh, listen to it, to ask a question, see what it's got to say, and maybe it's just a little niggle and it goes away and that's fine. But if it's a possession of pain, well, the wise thing to do is to pay closer attention and to until we get the message. Uh, the pain is an organismic message that's saying, pay attention here. And so this was uh, one way of uh, talking about the Buddha's realization was was to recognize that it's the avoidance or the ignorance of the reality of suffering in our lives that keeps us stuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else he said is, is that uh, the reason you stay stuck in this miserable samsaric affair is two things, not knowing suffering and not knowing the cause of suffering. And so whether it's a, a romantic or whether it's a, a pessimistic bar humbug sort of character or whatever else... Uh, all of us can practice the way so long as there is a willingness to pay attention to the reality of our life and to learn life's lessons. It is important that, uh, specifically that this question raises the matter of um, how all of us actually, uh, we, it's, it's helpful if we can respect where we find ourselves uh, encountering the way how we encounter the way, and and likewise with other people. Um, I know, I've got a very good friend who, um, actually he's a very good monk now, I'm not going to mention any names, but his encountering the way was through LSD. He just found out it was too expensive and then heard that meditation got you there cheaper. (laughs) And so uh, that was his experience. And I'm not, of course, encouraging the use of LSD at all, but... Well, that's to be respected if that's what you know your first meeting is. With, 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 I mean, mine was actually through um, that sensually indulgent, hedonistic ex-vicar, Alan Watts. Uh, yeah, died from overindulgence in booze, I think, writing a book on sensual spirituality, something like that. But if that's the first step, well, that's all right. Or maybe it was Dharma Bums, Jack Kerouac, or you know, wherever it is, or even, even that. Um, uh, some, that, that Tibetan Lama that well, used to be a plumber in Ireland and fell off a ladder and got possessed by a, by a Tibetan Lama. What was his name? Uh, you must have, there's hundreds of books by him around. And anyway, wherever it is that you first meet the Dhamma, that's okay. And we respect ourselves for that. It doesn't matter who we are, where we are, you, you know, some sort of totally deluded criminal caught up in your ways and you're in prison and then somebody introduces you to the Dhamma and you find it, that's great. Yeah. Or, or maybe you're somebody super spiritual, impeccably moral and, and you've never done anything naughty in your whole life and, and then you, you come across the Dhamma and you, that's, that's your first encounter, well that's fine too. It doesn't matter who we are, where we are, we respect ourselves for where we're at and then we move on from there. That's what the Dhamma teaches us is to meet ourselves where we're at and then move on a little bit. Now, if, if we just come on with heavy judgments 
on ourselves about how we should be and how we shouldn't be, well, we're never going to meet ourselves how we are. And uh, so we never meet ourselves how we are. There's nothing we can do about ourselves. So that's important, uh, that we meet ourselves where we are, who we are, as we are, and accept ourselves and learn from life's lessons, be willing to learn, as life teaches us. So this is true for all of us and whatever our walk of life or stage of life. One of the things I've been uh, reflecting on lately is um, my 15 years living here at, at Harnham Monastery. Uh, some of the community members are helping put together a, a CD as a, uh, a little gift souvenir thingy to give out at the 25th anniversary celebration we're going to have uh, at the time of the Katina on the 15th of October. And so looking through these old photographs uh, that uh, we have and reflecting on old times, things that have happened over the years. And it's not difficult, actually, to remember some of the mistakes that have been made, uh, particularly by me. <laughs> I made lots of mistakes in my time here. I remember when I first came here, I had all sorts of grand visions about how wonderful it's going to be. I was fed up with being the second monk at Chitur's monastery. The abbot of the monastery, as far as I was concerned, was was a source of all my suffering. And I thought once I got away from him and was, I was the abbot, then it'd all be fine. And, uh, well, that was, that was a rude awakening. Um, it was actually the beginning of quite a lot of trouble, quite a lot of difficulties. But, uh, and I could focus on all the mistakes I've made over the years. I could spend all night talking about them. I could write a book about them. But, um, and so I still make mistakes. You know, somebody was asking me earlier this evening or this afternoon uh, when I meditate, is my mind constant or is it do I encounter a variety of experiences? And so I said, yes, my meditations are, are far from predictable and, and uh, equanimous. But what I have noticed over the years, what I can say that as a result of, of practicing the way, is definitely a, a very clear increased willingness and ability to learn from life's lessons, to learn from making mistakes. And learning from making mistakes means it takes a conscious recognition that we are making mistakes. You say. When you do something that's off, you get caught up in anger, or you get caught up in greed, you get caught up in delusion. To learn from that... You know, so as we don't keep doing it, it does mean actually we need to be willing and able to sit and stop and just say, I take it. So this is the result of getting caught up in greed. Like our retreat house down there, you know, it's been moving along really a pace. In the community, it's been working mornings and afternoons and, and it just seems like all sorts of resources, all sorts of good people and helpful things have come together and we've really been making a lot of progress and I could get very greedy about I want this done, I want that done and, and uh, go down there and, and you know, say why haven't we finished this, why haven't we finished that well I know these days fortunately I've learned in the past from other building projects we've had here that that just leads to suffering but how do you learn that well we only learn it by getting it wrong and so this is a very important aspect of Dhamma, whether you're a romantic or whether you're anything else, that there's a willingness, a conscious willingness, to learn from getting it wrong. And we don't even need to 
call it getting it wrong, actually. You can, you know, you don't even have to call it a mistake. It's just learning from life and learning from suffering. If there's a willingness to learn from suffering, well, then we're cultivating the way. And wisdom, compassion, clarity, understanding is the natural consequence. It's not. We don't even have to call it Buddhism. This, this is this is basically what all of us are called to have this marvelous opportunity as human beings with intelligent minds, discerning minds, and, uh, the capacity for mindfulness, awareness. Uh, and then we have these sensitive organisms, uh, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind that really know how to experience a lot of pleasure and a lot of pain. And if behind all that is a willingness, a conscious willingness to learn from how we engage life, well then we will benefit and we will progress on the way. I think it was, uh, I think it was Nisargadatta who, who said, uh, it's not a mistake unless you keep doing it. Yeah. I think that's useful to remember. Because sometimes we talk about, oh, I, I'm making all these mistakes all the time. Well, if we didn't know what we were doing and we do something that causes us to suffer, well, from one perspective you can call it a mistake, but I think probably it's better just to call it learning from life. You know, this is life. This is how we learn. We learn from paying attention to, uh, to our suffering. And this is what human beings can do. Now, human beings have sati and a superior uh, capacity for discernment to other animals. Uh, I think all other animals, some people will disagree. Some people think that dolphins are pretty smart. But I've never talked to a dolphin, and uh, so I don't know how clever they really are. But uh, certainly human beings are much smarter than, than most other animals. And you see that other animals don't learn from their mistakes. They keep making the same old mistakes or doing the same old things over and over again. They keep suffering. And I remember when I was a, a young novice in Bangkok and the monastery I was living in, Wapawarn, was full of these dogs. People have dogs and they don't like to kill them. Or the puppies. And they don't, it's not the done thing to go and drown your puppies. And so they just take them all and dump them in the monastery. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think that's probably, probably true in Burma as well. <laughs> Cambodia and Laos. You know, the monasteries are you know, full of these dogs. And at least the ones in Wapawan, they all had the mange. Now, I don't know, English dogs don't get the mange. We don't do mange in England, do we? You know, we go to the vet. And, but uh, in Thailand, they do mange big time. And have you seen them scratching the mange? You know, it's a horrible thing. These poor dogs... Now, if you're a human being and you've got something like the mange, <laughs> you know not to scratch it, because that just makes it worse. You learnt last time you scratched it, it made it worse, and so next time, even though really you're dying to scratch, you say, no, don't, I'm not going to scratch. And you, you use your mind, your reflective intelligence, your mindfulness, and your determination, your focus, and you don't scratch, and then eventually it heals. Maybe a little homeopathic cream to put on as well, but... That's how healing happens, through restraint, through mindful, wise reflection. Well, unfortunately, dogs, as nice as they can be, as it's not a disparagement of dogs in any way at all, I assure those of you that are dog lovers, um, that they're not as intelligent as human beings. And they do things that cause their own suffering. I don't know if you saw that uh, article on the news recently of that uh, 
12 foot 60 pound Burmese python called Houdini. Houdini, um, this guy keeps a 12 foot 60 pound python and, uh, and he has an electric blanket to keep him warm because he's used to being in Burma, of course, where it's a lot warmer than wherever he is in America. And he feeds him rabbits, which is not very nice. But Houdini, being a Burmese snake, uh, gobbled up the, 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 the rabbit and then gobbled up the electric blanket. And there was this picture. You can see this x-ray. Of this. It must have taken him hours and hours and hours. To, he ate the whole blanket. And you can see the control mechanism there and the plug and everything. And, and uh, of course, you know, he would have been history if, uh, if his owner didn't have the intelligence and the discernment to take him along to the vet and pay a lot of money and there are many hours surgery to extract the electric blanket. And Houdini, of course, is happy again. And, uh, but, um, well, that, you know, it's just one of those examples of, of, of animals with less intelligence and discernment than human beings. So we have this superior capacity for mindfulness and wise reflection. And the thing is, we're supposed to exercise it. We're supposed to use it, that when we suffer... There's nothing wrong. You know, if we're heedless, unaware human beings, we suffer. If we're heedless, unaware romantics, and we suffer, or whatever we are, we suffer. And we avoid it. We go and eat a pizza or watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on television or something. Well, that is, that's really bad management. The wise thing to do is to exercise our superior intelligence and mindfulness and wise reflection and to sit there and, and recognize, all oh, right, suffering, I'm suffering. What was the cause of the suffering? And using it to reflect and say, oh, right, that was the cause of suffering. Hanging on to the wrong thing. That's, you know, we're hanging on to the wrong thing. We're doing the wrong thing. We're relating to reality. There's nothing wrong with reality. There's never anything wrong with reality. Reality is just so. But the way we relate to reality, if we relate to reality in an unaware, unmindful, skillful way, well, then we suffer. But that's not reality's fault. And so if we use our potential as human beings to do this, well, then we can learn from life. I was relating to um, Ajahn Abhinanda the other day, uh, an experience I had when I was, uh, before I became a monk, I was snorkeling off the coast of uh, what was then Portuguese Timor. Uh, it was before the Portuguese shamelessly walked out and left the Timorese undefended and the Indonesians shamelessly went in and did what they did there. Anyway, this was before all that happened and I was having a very nice time snorkeling along the south coast of, uh, of Timor. Or maybe it was the north coast, I don't remember. Anyway, I do remember it was East Timor. What I saw on the seabed, I wasn't used to snorkeling because uh, you know, this was new for me, and certainly not in the tropics and in the coral. It was beautiful. And I, I could see there, not far down, on the bottom of the floor, this beautiful conch shell. There's a gorgeous conch shell, and I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's the sort of thing you normally only see in a in a shop or a museum or, or something. And I thought, I could have that conch shell. It's just there. It's like, you know, nobody owns it. It's right just there. And I could go down and get it and have it. And so I went down, you know, and my flippers flapping and, and went down there and I got this conch shell and I started coming back up again. Well, actually, it was quite a long way down. It was a lot longer than I thought. And, and uh, the conch shell was a lot heavier than I thought. And uh, I started coming back up, and I got to this point where I had to admit that something's got to go. You know, either either I let go of this conch shell 
and I make it to the top, or I hang on to the conch shell and I go down with it. I just didn't have the air left to do it. I just couldn't do it. And fortunately, whatever, I mean, somewhere in my past lives, I must have accumulated the parameter of renunciation or something, and, and a little bit. And fortunately, I let go of the conch shell, and I managed to get to the surface. But because I was so scared, I didn't blow my snorkel out. I took and got a lung full of seawater and then started panicking and coughing and spluttering and then promptly, very stupidly, ran ashore on the coral and cut my feet all to bits. However, I only did it once. I only did it once, and that's because I'm a moderately intelligent, reasonably mindful human being that learnt from the suffering. That The thing is that it doesn't matter if you want something a lot. If you really want something a lot, it doesn't mean to say you can have it. You probably remember that story they have of how you, how you catch a monkey. You put a bunch of peanuts in a kerosene tin so the monkey can get his hand in when it's like this, but then once it's full of peanuts, he can't get his hand out. And monkeys won't let go of peanuts because as nice as monkeys can be, they're most of them anyway, are not intelligent enough to know they've got to let go of the peanuts before they can get their hand out. So this is one of the lessons of life, that when we suffer from greed or anger or delusion or whatever it is, the point is not, you know, do we never make mistakes or do we never get it wrong? Do we never hang on to something and cause our suffering? The point is, can we learn from it? Are we willing to learn from it? And if we are willing to live, well, then we experience for ourselves the benefit. And so we're the ones living in a monastery with the endless challenges and difficulties that one has living in close proximity to seven or eight other wild, passionate young men full of views and opinions about everything. Or whether it's living the householder's life with a lovely husband or wife to look after you and be nice to you all the time and feed you and care for you and so on. I don't know, whatever the situation we're in, we're each going to find difficulties. And the thing is, whether we learn from it. If we, if we misperceive our difficulties, well, then we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. We blame, or we, get, we greet, get caught up in greed, and we think, well, I didn't get what I wanted this time, but I will get what I want next time. One of the, uh, one of the things I was reminded of, one of the, uh, my, my experiments with life <clears throat> that I've, um, kind of imposed upon the rest of the community during my 15 years here is, is my, um, my attitude towards the color scheme of the reception room in the house. <laughs> so when I first came here, everything was painted the color of Chithurst porridge. You know, it was like what happened was I think Chithurst did a bulk purchase of paint and uh, they had more than they knew what to do with and, and it was probably a cheap deal because it was going rusty in the tins. And so they sent their leftovers up to the poor relatives up north here. That was Harnham. And so Harnham had all these half-rusty tins of, of uh, oatmeal paint. And so they painted everything oatmeal. And when I arrived here, everything in the monastery was painted oatmeal. And I was about 40, 41, something like that, 42, and... It was that stage of life where I was wanting to do things differently, as one does at that stage, quite rightly. And, and I very quickly painted the whole end wall of the reception room green, strong, deep green, like the colour of that cheese plant there. It wasn't a subtle green, 
It was a, a very strong, vivid green, feeling completely convinced that it was going to stay that way for a very long time and it was going to transform our life here. I was, you know, I was so inspired by my daring, passionate interest in transforming Theravadan Buddhism and their commitment to painting everything oatmeal that, <laughs> that I, I had no reservations about it at all. And I think I even painted the wall myself. I don't think I got other people to do it. I think I did it myself. Well, I think it only lasted maybe one year or maybe two years. And, and then I changed my mind and decided, no, that wasn't the color at all. I got it wrong. Um, but I knew now what the right color was, and it was canary yellow. And so we painted uh, the lower half of all the walls in the reception room canary yellow. Uh, bright, I mean, that's bright yellow. And this time I was really sure. I'm really sure. And uh, I am generally very sure of my judgment on these matters. And, but you know what? It only lasted two years. And then I was inspired to think, well, what we really need is this nice, we need some nice panelling, a nice wooden panelling, stained dark brown. And so, well, that's what we did. We put that up. And that, that lasted, I think, I don't know, I think that lasted maybe about eight years. Um, it was quite, that was quite, a, that was quite a, a, a good assessment. But uh, you know what colour is painted now? Oatmeal. <laughs> it's all painted oatmeal. We're back where we started after 15 years. And it wasn't the colour of the room that was a problem, actually. At the time, I thought it was the colour of the room. I thought, you know, Theravada Buddhism is such a boring, mundane, conservative tradition that, you know, we need to get a little colour. You know, the Mahayanists are not the only daring people around here. Well, I was wrong, basically. There's nothing wrong with painting everything oatmeal. But we do need to learn. I mean, I'm not going to ask the community to repaint the walls for quite a while, I assure you. I mean, it's, it's fine. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Ajinabinando has doubts. <laughs> well, maybe he's learning from past experience as well. <laughs> but this is the thing, is to, is to, uh, to learn from these things, not, not to keep doing the same thing over and over again. We'll only keep doing the same thing over and over again if we don't stop and look. And, when we, we, and then really learn the lesson. Yeah. And this is how we learn. And exercising mindfulness... Regular mindfulness, you know, regular observation. That's why meditation is important to be regular in our meditation. You know, not just you know, once a week when we feel like it, but you know, six days a week. It's not seven days a week. And if you're well, you, once you're properly established in, in practice, well, then meditation is just something you can do anywhere, anytime. But you know, in the beginning, six days a week, 20 minutes a day, regular, same time if possible, and then you start to learn from these regular observations. And regular observation tells us a lot, and when we learn from what goes on, well, then we can, we can change our, alter our behavior and, and see what is it we're hanging on that's causing all the suffering. What are we doing that's creating the difficulties? Nobody else can tell us this stuff. Lots of people are interested in telling us this stuff, lots of psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists making a very good living out of telling us a lot of, not to mention those pharmaceutical companies making a huge amount of money uh, on, on their drugs uh, keeping us unaware of the real causes of our suffering often. Hasten to add that sometimes of course there is an appropriate place for, for all of these things but uh, when they're used as, a, as, a, uh, as an avoidance of reality well then the counterproductive. 
So it's regular observation, regular mindfulness is, and a willingness to learn from what we observe. This, um, I hear this week is uh, something like Save Our Butterflies Week. I don't know if you knew this, but this is Save Our Butterflies Week because uh, due to unawareness and heedlessness uh, over the last few decades, the rate at which the butterflies is disappearing is frightening. And butterflies are a good barometer, actually, for the state of the environment. When the butterflies start disappearing, there's something to really worry about. Butterflies are not just pretty things, actually. They're very important. And so there is a, an exercise this week for all people in Britain to save our butterflies. And the reason that they have the statistics to know that there's a problem is because of these, these uh, people who have an interest in these things who make regular observations. Without regular observations, they wouldn't have the statistics and they wouldn't realize there's a real difficulty. Well, so it is with our, our hearts and minds. Without regular observation, interest in seeing and learning, then we don't get the information, then we can't make any adjustments. Now, if we, we do the practice, whatever our orientation in, in life, whatever our, you know, if we're an angry sort of oriented person, you know, some people have, have more of a sort of uh, particle dosa jurita, you know, Angry disposition, angry orientation. Other people are lopa jurita, uh, a lustful orientation. Some people are deluded. And whatever our orientation or uh, disposition, or character, it doesn't really matter. What does matter is whether there's a regular observation and then a willingness uh, to take what we receive. Uh, somebody told me, related to this, somebody told me that uh, a survey had been done in America which uh, gave very strong evidence that once people have an income of more than $10,000 in America, $10,000 a year, after that it doesn't make any difference how much money you have to the state of well-being. What greed tells us is the more money we have, the happier we're going to be. That's what greed tells us. And it's very convincing. You know, if, if I say, you know, $10,000 a year, that's not that much money, actually. I think it's probably something like 6,000 pounds or something. It's not, it's not a huge amount of money. And the evidence is pretty strong to suggest that once you've got that much, to have more is not going to make you any happier. Uh, but, you know, probably most of us are really surprised by that. Think, oh, no, if I get more money, I'm sure I'm going to be happier. But this is, you know, we need to look at this. Why do we think this way? Why do we keep struggling to get more? Well, it's because we haven't learned the lesson. We haven't stopped and actually seen the nature of greed or the nature of anger or the nature of delusion in our minds. Now, with regular observation... What we start to see, not just think, what we start to see is exactly exactly the point where and when we're doing what we're doing that makes ourselves suffer and what we can do about it. Up until that point, it's only speculation. You can read all the information that's in all the books and there's a huge amount of Buddhist books and other spiritual books around that tell us about suffering or about reality or about life 
But that's not the same thing as actually seeing reality or seeing life. But if walking the way is understood, as I understand it, as exercising this potential we have for, for mindfulness and wise reflection, that means that when we do do something that creates suffering, our interest inspires us to not follow the habit to avoid the consequences, not distract ourselves, like most people are doing. You know, the television, the, the, the values of the casual culture are, are all just saying, you know, you've got pain, do something to alleviate it. Distract yourself. Distraction is the, the least you can do. Numb yourself or do something other than feel the consequences of our heedlessness. Whereas what Dhamma tells us to do is exactly the opposite. What Dhamma tells us to do is, is to sit there and take it. And even say it, you know, if you make a mistake or you do something that leads to suffering, speak angrily or deceitfully or act greedily, and then afterwards you're feeling really bad, the best thing to do is don't go and meditate on your breath and try and get over it and get peaceful again. Just go and sit quiet on your own and really feel what it feels like. See how bad you can feel. How bad can you feel? Uh, you may have heard me say before the, the example of Ruth Dennison, and that uh, very highly respected, very able, and very lovely uh, meditation teacher in America, who has had, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure if she still runs a bit of meditation uh, retreat center in Joshua Tree National Monument in uh, south of Los Angeles, a very lovely place. And anyway, there was this one incident where one of her students came to her and was was uh, whinging and whining and complaining about the military who, who, uh, who fly low over the desert. And I guess it's probably like the experience we have where the RAF, not so far north of here, in fact it's probably NATO, I don't know, it's not just the RAF these days, goodness knows who's up there these days. But uh, anyway, they practice, and we here on Hanum Hill are a kind of a, a target they use us as an orientation exercise and they, they see how close they can fly to our chimney. And they, they come down, there's this ripping metal just like, just a few feet above us here. And uh, this has been going on since I don't know when. I know once when Ajahn Jayanto was here and he, he wrote a letter to the military uh, pointing out how disturbing we found it and, and they wrote back saying, well, we're sure you understand our pilots need to practice for their their work they're doing overseas. <laughs> and I don't know whether Ajahn Jayanta wrote back and said, we have trouble understanding that, but um, I perhaps I think probably he thought it wasn't any point. But uh, anyway, getting back to Ruth Denison and uh, Joshua Tree National Monument, this uh, dumber student came to her and was really upset and angry, and she said, I just want to tell those guys what I think of them. So Ruth says, well, go and tell them. Next time one of those planes come over... So, uh, yeah, sure enough, this great big jet bomber came over and the student goes out and this kind of most colourful language starts really letting rip at this macho maniac up there. It was a female student and, and she was really telling this guy what she thought of him. And, and so the next time there was an interview with Ruth, uh, Ruth asked and said, well, you know, did that help? <laughs> Do you feel better? And they said, well, no, not really. <laughs> it doesn't help. You know, to get caught up in anger doesn't help. That's the truth. That's the reality. Sticking your hand to the fire doesn't feel good. That's the reality. Now, as far as the body's concerned, we learn that lesson. 
as far as the heart, far as the heart and mind is concerned, you know, we're all slow learners. It's a very difficult learn, lesson to learn, to let go of anger, to let go of greed, to let go of delusion. But uh, practice means that that's what's called for. If we're suffering, it's because we're hanging on to the wrong thing. And if we do practice, well then, little by little, we get this message. And then letting go happens. You drop the conch shell and you live. Yeah. Or you don't drop the, drop the conch shell and you go down and you get stuck in misery until you physically die. And that's really sad. But hopefully none of us are going to do that. Yeah. We learn in every moment of mindful suffering and willing receiving of the suffering, we learn a little bit. And we learn to be a little bit more willing next time. Now, if we hold up the goal of, of being free from suffering, well then, you know, next time we suffer, we think, oh, I'm failing. Well, I'd suggest that we set the goal to become more, more willing to receive our suffering. How willing are we to actually say, I take it. You know, I got angry or I got greedy. I take it. And then to sit there and feel it. Because if we are willing to do that, what happens is this an agility of being develops. An agility of being comes. Whereby we're not always defending ourselves against life. We don't know what's around the corner. But if we're always trying not to suffer, if we're afraid of making mistakes and, and or unwilling to learn from our mistakes, well then we're having to defend ourselves all the time. And we know that the unexpected can happen any time. However, if we set up our goal in practice as increased willingness to receive the consequence of our making a mistake, well, then we don't have to defend ourselves, and we can become more relaxed, more receptive. And with that, with that comes a sense of, it's like a, uh, an increased transparency, that instead of feeling like life hits you, you know, just bang, 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 one thing after another, which is what it can feel like. I mean, sometimes life's lessons can be like that. You know, very soon after I arrived here, we started getting letters from the solicitor threatening to take us to court and then taking us to court. So and then this and then that. And it's just one thing after another. Yeah. And you think, what did I do to deserve this? Yeah. Well, that's not going to do any good, is it? Yeah. Thinking, what did I do to deserve this? Yeah. Or saying it shouldn't be this way. Yeah. I don't deserve this. Those people are bad. All those kind of thoughts, which we can very easily dwell on, from a practice perspective, if we're willing to receive the suffering and interested in learning, all those thoughts become redundant. Those thoughts are redundant. All those thoughts actually are part of a a strategy of avoidance. Those people are bad. What do they do to deserve this? It shouldn't be this way. Or I do deserve this because I'm so bad or whatever. All of those thoughts are part of our strategy of avoiding reality and take us in the opposite direction to practice. Whereas if we're committed out of interest in reality, well then we actually oppose that. We, 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 we undermine those thoughts with awareness, with non-judgmental, here and now, body-mind awareness. We receive it and say, this is suffering. It feels like this. It feels like this. It's just so. And then in that willing receptivity, as a whole body-mind, little by little, letting go happens. Yeah? If we, again, if we think we should let go and we shouldn't suffer and we see that suffering is some sort of an indictment against us, well, yeah. 
when I can learn the lesson. And that's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha encouraged us rather to, to contemplate the reality of our life. Like there was a, there's a verse in the Dhammapada, which uh, I've reflected upon often, and, and um, right now it's very pertinent. I think it might be verse, I think it's verse 201, which says that victory leads to hatred because the defeated suffer. The peaceful ones live happily beyond defeat and victory. But here he means the, the, the peaceful ones. He's actually talking about those who realized the way, realized the reality that means that you're not driven by praise and blame, victory and defeat, pleasure and suffering, honor and insignificance, the eight worldly dhammas. Yeah. A being has gone beyond being defined, pushed around, blown over by the eight worldly winds. Then they live happily. Yeah. They're beyond victory and defeat. They don't go and bomb their neighbors thinking that if we can just get rid of Hezbollah, then everything's going to be nice again. What are the Hezbollah going to feel like? Um, Hezbollah are going to, they're getting stronger. Hezbollah is getting stronger. And that's not going to end anything. Now we all know this, and, and, well not all of us know this, but, uh, anybody who has a reflective perspective on life knows this. And our task is how to take it deeper. And not just to get disheartened by what we see on the news and what's going on in the world, and to get indignant or, or upset to the point where we lose our perspective, but rather to take it in, inwards. And, and when we get caught up in such ideas of, well, when I can just get rid of my suffering or get rid of the people who make me suffer, then I'm going to be happy. That basically shows that we haven't really learned life's lessons yet. So uh, with regards to this question here, um, I've been going on quite a long time about, do you think romantics can practice the way without giving up on romance. Um, well, I started off by saying uh, yes. And so, yes, initially, everybody can practice the way. But uh, I'm afraid the bad news is, <laughs> ultimately, no. Uh, because we have to give up on everything. We have to be willing to let go of everything, including all our fantasies and all our hopes. But letting go doesn't mean to say that we, we lose everything. It might feel like we're going to lose everything. You know, like my attachments to this place over the years. You know, my attachments to this place have caused me a huge amount of suffering. You know, when the neighbours next door shot out that etched glass dhammachaka that we had up on the up on the the side of the building there. Do you remember that? They had this beautiful special etched glass dhammachaka and one of the neighbours' sons just shot it out with his pellet gun and and my attachment to uh, this place caused me to suffer. Uh, for a few hours there, and uh, various other things that you're all aware of that have happened over the years. But what matters is not whether we don't make the mistakes and create the cause of suffering, but whether we're willing to learn from it. Whether we're willing to learn, whether we're willing to, to really see, oh yeah, the suffering has got a cause, and the cause is not out there. The cause is our attachment. And so even attachment to a romance... And, and lovely fantasies, as we might all be capable of having, uh, they're going to cause suffering. But letting go of them doesn't mean to say that there isn't any hope of you having a lovely relationship. 
So whoever asks this question, I hope that their life turns out good. And uh, thank you very much for your attention this evening. Yeah, I'm going to pass on to Karwan and now.